Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Thank you. So um, San Francisco's back, and so is the Commonwealth Club of California. And I want to thank every one of you for making the effort to come here tonight. And everyone who's watching this program online, uh, welcome. Uh, This program will also be available in about a week in a video format, which you can look at on on the website and share with your friends. Um, When I looked at the topic title, I was really excited because if I wasn't up here with Dr. Verdon, I would be in the audience with you. I mean, just think about this. What would you do with an extra 10 years of healthy life? So I am here like you to find out what the secret is. And I don't intend to leave this room until I know. Okay, welcome, Eric. I'd like to give a brief description of your background, which is impressive. Um, Eric Verdon is the president and the CEO of the Buck Institute for Research on Aging in Nevada in Marin County. The Buck is the first and the largest independent research institute in the world that is focused solely on aging. And it seems to be working. <laughs> I'm 90 years old. <laughs> you told me 150, though. <laughs> never mind. Okay. So Eric was born in Liège, Belgium. Uh, he received his MD from the University of Liège and did his training at Harvard Medical School. I bet you have a lot of stories to tell about that. Uh, prior to going to the Buck Institute, he was a senior investigator and the associate director of the Gladstone Institute, not too far away from here. He's also a professor at the University of California, San Francisco, UCSF. Um, apparently, you've published more than 280 scientific papers, and I must say I did not read them all <laughs> in preparation for today's show, but uh, you hold 15 patents and you consult with multiple biotech and pharmaceutical companies. And this is the important thing. You're in the top 1% of the most highly cited scientists in the world. Hey. (laughs) So we have the real deal here tonight. And he is uh, a global thought leader in the field of aging. So that's your introduction. And what I'd like, how I'd like to start is I'd like you to just say what you would like to say as an introduction to this in-person and online audience. Well, good evening, everyone. I want to, I want to start by thanking all of you to, for coming here and uh, being one the last one he, who arrived uh, because I was stuck in traffic around the corner. I know how painful it is to navigate the city on, on, a, on, a, on an evening. Um, anyway, I'm glad to be here. Um, thank you again. I think what I what I would like to do today is really bring a, a message of optimism in terms of what we can do uh, about our about our health and and maybe I will ask a I start by asking a question if, if this has been uh, uh, the way we started um, if I were to ask you what part of your longevity do you think is due to your genes that you've inherited from your parents uh, factors on which you cannot do anything except be lucky or unlucky versus lifestyle factors. What would you say? Maybe I'll, I'll ask for a raise of hand. Do you think it's a majority lifestyle factors or is it a majority genetics or is it equal, 50-50? What, what would you say? Maybe, maybe let's start first group, majority genetics. So it's determined by your genes. Okay. How about a majority lifestyle factors? Okay, good. How about equal, equal? All right. It's actually both. You're totally right. But the numbers are, to me, stunning when I, when I heard them. It's 93% lifestyle factors, 7% genetics. And so why is this important? Because it means you can't blame your parents, uh, num- number one. And number two, it's... It, really is incumbent upon you to actually adopt the lifestyle factors. And, you know, one of the, I'll say one more word before we go back to the question. Some of you are probably thinking, yeah, he's going to tell us to drink less, eat less, exercise (laughs) and sleep. And, And these are the major lifestyle factors that you can apply. The question is, why don't more of us do 
And this is really where I think a lot of our work is focused on, is trying to really provide more practical answers, except versus telling you exercise more. You know, how much, what type, what form, and, and so on. So I, th I hope we will have a chance to really delve into all of these lifestyle factors and, and really explore, you know, how you mentioned the, the term of 10 years. I think it's a very pessimistic. Today, it probably is closer to 20 years of healthy life that you can, you can bank on. And some of us are already doing this. Uh, the question, you know, what are they doing right? What can you do today to actually increase that number and really maximize your healthy lifespan? Well, that was a very long, um, <laughs> long question. <laughs> well, it was a key question. Um, you know, one of the things I wonder, and perhaps other members of the audience do too, is you hear this word lifespan and you hear this word health span, what's the difference? Well, again, let me ask you another question. Who wants to live to 120 here in this room? Okay, the first time I asked this question, actually, that was one of the first time I, I, I gave a sort of a large talk, a large audience, a lay audience, and I had just taken the position at the back and I was gung-ho, we're gonna change life expectancy, and. And I had exactly the same reaction, like five people, two people in a room of 700 people raised their hands. And I thought, what am I doing here? <laughs> uh, nobody wants what we're trying to do. Now, the question is, let me, let me rephrase the question. Who wants to live to 110 in the same physical condition that you were at age 50, surrounded by your family, your friends? <laughs> here it is. Now, the reason why you don't want to live old is because we associate aging with disease. And, and you might say, well, that, that's a fact. It is a fact. All of us, if you've had parents who've reached 70, 75, in America, if you reach 65 years old, 70% of people carry one chronic disease of aging. And, and you know these diseases. This is uh, type 2 diabetes, uh, 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 heart attack, stroke. Many forms of cancer are linked to aging, Alzheimer's disease. Uh, sarcopenia, which is a loss of muscle mass, loss of hearing, uh, arthritis. So the list goes on and on. Aging today is associated with a large number of diseases. And so we associate aging with being sick. So, of course, you don't want to do this. The question is, can we actually change that equation? And, and so the association with aging and disease is real. It exists throughout society. The question is, can we change that equation? And this is the focus of our work. And so this goes to the term, the two terms that we're probably going to use during the discussion of health span versus lifespan. So a long life is, is wonderful, but if you can actually enjoy it. And so the health span is actually your healthy years of life. And right now, you know, there's a lot of noise about the longevity field and what we're going to accomplish. Some of our, my colleagues are more optimistic or you know, they'd like to tell the story better than others, and they will throw numbers like we're going to live to 150. Right now, we are focused on really maximizing health span. That, that is really the major equation. You know, most of us in this country live to 80, 80, on average, actually 76. It's decreased with COVID. But m many of these years actually are not healthy. At 65, as I mentioned, it starts and it keeps accumulating. So imagine you know, what we are aiming to accomplish today, which I think is doable, is to increase life expectancy to 90 as a maximum life. For most people, I think it's doable today and the majority of these years being healthy. So 90, 95, two or three years of disease. Imagine how much of a change of equation this was present for, for society. This is what we're working on today. So you have to make sure you're talking to the right audience, because recently I said to someone, you know, I don't want to live to be 100 if the last 20 years I'm in a rest home watching cartoons. And he said, I like cartoons. <laughs> so there we are. It's true. So if you think about lifespan and you think about health span, would it be fair to say you could reduce it to lifespan is about the quantity of life and health spans about the quality of life. Absolutely. Is that is that what we're talking that, about? That's what it is. And health span is also quantity. So health spans quantity plus quality. Yeah. And what you're saying is, I think, clarify if I misunderstood, that you would live quite a long time in reasonably good health 
and then you would have a very short period at the end of decline. Maybe the whole system might just close down. Is that instead of this this collection of chronic diseases that increasingly burden people and cost the country lots of money? Yes, Th this is a concept that we call uh, compression of morbidity. So in, in, in the, uh, this compressing this period when we are actually not enjoying life. Now, you, uh, I suspect in the audience right now, a number of you are thinking, well, what's the evidence that you can actually do this? And, and I'm going to start by telling, so the evidence are the centenarians today. And centenarians are, they contradict what I told you earlier in terms of um, life expectancy, because th that's the only group in which there's a strong genetic component today. It's a small group. And those who are lucky to, to be centenarians likely have protective genes. So there's a role of genes in, in our aging, and, and, and the interface between genes and the environment is actually what determines your lifespan. And in most of us, it's mostly lifestyle. And the centenarians, many of them actually have, don't have a very healthy lifestyle. Many of them smoke, drink, don't exercise. And, and no matter what they're doing, they end up living much longer. I mean, on average, 100, this is what defines the centenarians. When we look at their health span versus lifespan, most of them, on average, again, I'm sure someone will bring up an exception. On average, they live healthy to 95 five years of morbidity. So if you think about numbers, five out of 100, that's 5% of morbidity. For most of us, it's 15%. Not only we live shorter, but we also have a longer fraction of our lives afflicted by these diseases. So the fact that the centenarians can do it is an indication that it can be done. The question is, how can we hack, to use a term you know, that people are talking about? How can we, how can we manipulate the system to actually get most of us to get there. So there's a small group of people who are doing all the bad things, right? The cigarette smokers and the whiskey drinkers and the poker players who live to be 150. Is that genes? It's mostly genes. It's and mostly. so is anyone in this audience have a first degree relative who has lived to 100? That's fantastic. And by the way, centenarians is the most rapidly growing group of the population right now in terms of age. Now, for all of you who raised your hands, I have good news. That means you have genetic determinants in you that are predicting that, again, most likely you will live above 90, 95. That's already the good news. If you add lifestyle to this, you can expect even more. And that's the good news. For the rest of us, lifestyle, again, is determinant. So you don't have a pack of cigarettes handy? No. Okay. Um, you know, it wasn't so long ago that 65 was considered old, and I think uh, Social Security uh, and Medicare are all, they begin at 65 because I think the government, when it was invented, thought maybe many people would be gone, would be dead, and they wouldn't have to pay, right? So now people are living. I'm serious about that. I think that if I can add something to this, that's true. In 19, whatever, when Social Security was established, the average life expectancy was 65. So most people yeah. actually passed away at that, at that date. The statisticians knew what they were doing. <laughs> yes. but, but because of your work and other work, like we're blowing the whole thing out of proportion now. So my question is, you know, 65 used to be considered one or two generations ago elderly. I mean, no doubt about it, right? But now uh, we're seeing this big jump can you talk a little bit about that? Because at the Buck, you do a lot of research using C. elegans, worms, and mice and things. I don't think you're doing a lot of clinical research yet, although there may be plans for that, which we might hear or might not hear. But So this is a human story. People are living longer. Why? So let's look back at the history a little bit. Anyone venture to guess how long we lived in 1850 on average? 47, exactly. 40. <laughs> we have a very informed... Uh, <laughs> 47. And okay. so what has happened over the last 150 years is every decade we've gained two years of extra life. And so you can extrapolate this is where this is leading us. And actually, based on the numbers... Half of the children that are born today will be centenarians, which is already remarkable, half of them, um, which is wonderful. 
except if you think about you know, these centenarians are going to have, again, a lot of disease burden you know, for a long period of time. So now how do we get here? Um, it's a combination of factors. And I, I, can, I can name a few. Medicine, you know, medicine discovering anesthesia, antibiotics, but also a lot of public health, sanitation, education, nutrition, uh, so there, there's a whole series of vaccinations, so many variables that have, you know, influenced this progressive increase in lifespan. You know, that's the good news. The bad news is we've done most of the easy things, you know. And so what we are working on is what are the next stages, the next steps that we have to take to keep going this two years, uh, gaining two years of extra life every decade. Um, it's not going to be easy because the problems are getting harder and harder. And this is why I stand in contrast to some of my colleagues who are talking about 150, 150 year lifespan and some people talking about immortality. Frankly, I mean, this is all nonsense. It just doesn't, 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 there's no evidence for this. If you hear someone talk about it, I would say run, especially with your pocketbook, because <laughs> many of these people will send you a pill or they'll send you a miracle cure. And, you know, unfortunately the field has, you know, a lot of really serious people doing the hard work, but it also has a whole fringe of people who would want you to believe that they've solved it or we're about to solve it. We're not about to solve it. These are hard problems. But I think like any problems that medicine or biology has tried to, to, to tackle, they're solvable. And if I can go back to your, your point there, why are we so optimistic that we, we're going to be able to solve them one at a time is the research that we've done in animal models, mice, fruit flies, C. elegans, this is a little worm that's about the size of a comet, it lives 21 days that we can study in the laboratory. These model systems allow us to recapitulate a life in 21 days for the worm. And so this little worm that many of our, my colleagues work on, uh, you know, one of my colleagues said, you know, why would you would we study these worms unless you have a pet worm? Uh, and, and my answer is that, you know, even if you don't have a pet worm, uh, we've mapped pathways that control aging in, in these animal models. We can double their lifespan, and actually with some interventions, we can multiply their lifespan by 10. Imagine, so this little worm normally lives 20 days. We have some worms that are living close to a year, and during that year, they go through a whole life, you know, life you know, youth, adolescence, uh, uh, adulthood, and old age. And you can actually recognize the signs of aging. They move slowly, they accumulate all kinds of uh, toxic proteins, and mm -hmm. so on. So the study of these model systems has given us, uh, and, and this is something, science that has happened, you know, over the last 25 years, because you might wonder why are we hearing so much about longevity right now? And you probably see, you know, every, every other week there's an article in, in The Atlantic, in New Yorker, a show on TV talking about longevity. The funding is increased, the biotech industry is, is, is following suit. So there's a lot of excitement. The excitement does not come from what we've accomplished to humans. This is where we're going. It's come from what we've been able to do in these animal model systems. For example, another example, in mice, we can double their lifespan almost with a drug. Imagine just a pill that we give to these mice and, and their lifespan increases almost magically. So all of this science is at the stage where we think it's time to start translating it into humans, bringing it to, to the population, trying to really, how do we do this? And that's really where the buck is going right now. It's moving, it's not abandoning basic science, that's the critical engine that drives all of these discoveries, but it's starting to ask the hard questions. It's nice to make the pet worm live long and the mice and the dogs also, how do we translate all this biology into humans? How, how can we make you, myself, and all of us benefit from this for a longer and healthier life? I love the idea of a pet worm. <laughs> I knew you would. Like taking it for walks or whatever. Um, so so it's, if I'm clear on this, it sounds like the increase in aging, I'm sorry, the increase in longevity over the last, say, 100 or 150 years, it's been fairly incremental. Would that would that be accurate? Yes, two years every decade. Yeah. Do you think it's likely to continue to be incremental, or, or are we going to see some big jumps? 
No, actually, and this is something that's interesting also because it really speaks, again, about society and lifestyle factors. Uh, we're lagging behind the rest of the world. Uh, in, in comparison to the rest of the Western world, uh, most, you know, lavish expectancy has continued to increase by two years every decade. We stalled. And, and we stalled for a number of reasons. Actually, in the last three years, we've gone down. You know, yeah. life expectancy in the U.S. now is 76. Uh, if you go to some parts of, parts of Japan or if you go in some unique areas from, uh, from this country, and I'll say a word about this, we can see the, the rate keeps going up two years every decade. So obviously, you know, the two big reasons why we stalled in, in the U.S. as a country is one is health disparities. You know, we see health switching, you know, the, the affluent, educated population lives longer and longer. The poor people and educated live shorter and shorter. And I've, I've said this is the stuff that makes revolution in the long term when people realize, you know, not only are we poorer, but also our whole life experience has changed in a dramatic manner. So um, that that's where we are today. In Japan, uh, you know, today in Japan and in France, the average life expectancy of women is 92. 92. Uh, that's that's the, the peak of dying for, for women in France and in Japan. So um, if anybody here from Marin, Marin County, raise your hand. Good. I think congratulations. You don't have a centenarian parent, but you live in one of the longest lived county in the country. And, and if you look... Um, I don't know if any of you are living in Ross, but life expectancy in Ross is 88 today. So it's this 12 years longer, <laughs> 12 years longer than the rest of the country. Um, on the other hand, if you look, for example, in, in Chicago, the study has been done looking at different areas. The strongest predictor of your life expectancy today is your zip code, unfortunately. Again, reflecting, you know, what we call the social determinants of health. You know, what access to f what kind of air do you breathe? What kind of food do you have? Do you have food with organic food? Uh, stores with organic food? Are, are people around you exercising? You know, what is the level of obesity? All of this plays an enormous role. And so that's that's the good news, you know. But the diversity, the 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 splitting of the population is is obviously one source of concern and one area. Um, that I am passionate about. So much, many people in our field are focused on maximum lifespan increase. And this has forced some people to call, you know, our field of research, medicine by the rich for the rich. And this has been in some way, uh, you know, sort of uh, accentuated by the fact that many of our donors are the local, you know, billionaires. And, and you probably have heard, you know, Calico, uh, as a company, it was funded by Sergey Brin. Uh, you know, uh, Mark Zuckerberg is funding you know another effort you know, that is also focusing on some disease of aging. So that's the perception, but the reality is not this. I am equally passionate by the idea that we we should really try to find effective solutions to the fact that everyone should should have access to a long and healthy life. And so, you know, accessing uh, communities that have problems in terms of their health span and longevity is equally a, pro a priority for what we're doing at the back. And, and one, frankly, that I'm you know, almost more passionate than, than just increasing maximum longevity. Well, I saw when, when you mentioned Ross, there was a youngster in the back row who I think is the incoming board chair, Matt Carbone, who gave us a high five. <laughs> yes. He looks like he's about 18 years old. <laughs> I'm not sure what he's doing, Matt. He's doing it the right thing. Uh, I wanted to I wanted to um, to talk a little bit about what you went like that. You said so. There's the educated, smart, affluent people, and then there's the poor, less educated. Two days ago, I was looking at uh, global statistics for uh, lifespan, and the United States is number forty six. I mean, forty six. Not only that, uh, ten years ago we were number twenty nine. And ten years before that, we were number nineteen or whatever. So we are we are not only not only is our lifespan actually decreasing, but our position in the world is decreasing. And yet we have all these incredible universities and research institutes and philanthropists. What 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 do you see? Because it, it, it does sound to me like when you went like that, I thought, oh, we're going to have an even more two tier society. And then you use the word revolution, not me. Yeah. So. 
so so can you say something about about how how to take those statistics very seriously i i i think there's no way but to take them extremely seriously it's and you know one attitude is to from some of my colleagues is to say well this is a society problem i'm not a politician i'm not the one who's making these decisions but i mean number one we all vote number two um i think our field has the potential to bring true solutions that are that are amenable in any settings now for example um we think about exercise uh you know and and some of you are probably thinking, oh, my God, he's going to tell us to exercise more. Uh, <laughs> and I don't like, and, you know, I, I hear this a lot. I don't like to exercise. I hate, I mean, I'm not speaking about me. I'm, I'm a gym rat. But some people will say, you know, I don't like to exercise. I don't like, I don't like to sweat. I just, I, this is just not part of my life. Um, that being said, uh, exercise is, is sort of wrong way to speak about this. And I love to speak about physical activity which is really gardening is equally protective as, you know, probably not equally, but it's extremely protective. So I, I'm going to give you a number. There's a certain amount of walking that will cut down your year over year risk of heart attack, stroke, cancer, type two diabetes, hip fracture, hearing loss, everything, you know, uh, by Alzheimer's, by 40%. If I had to ask you a question, how much walking do you have to do to get this result? 40% reduction every year. Someone wants to venture a number. How much? 150 minutes a week. So that I'm, I have it in my mind in, in, in per day. So that would be 20 minutes a day, approximately. Any, any other numbers? 30 minutes. Huh? Yeah, a number of steps. I don't. I. I, I don't actually. Uh, that's actually. I can come back to this because there's a study that looked not not at the amount, but looked at the number of steps. And I've never actually made the correspondence between the two. So th the answer is about 20 minutes a day of walking. Now, 20 minutes a day. I would venture to say, independently of your socioeconomic status or your circumstances, that's 10 minutes in the morning and 10 minutes at night. And it doesn't have to be. You know, Olympic rate walking. It could just be a solid walk, a walk, not not just strolling um, at Union Square. That doesn't count. You, you have you have to walk. It has to be exercising so that you can maintain a conversation, but not 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 be out of breath necessarily. So to me, this is the type of information. And in terms of steps, the, not, the studies have been done. Again, you get the maximum bang for your buck with six thousand steps per day. Remember that you know you. Those of you who have a Fitbit, you probably have the number. I should be walking 10,000 steps. And I have a number of friends who, or colleagues who are you know, doing that 10,000 steps every day. And I've actually dug out to say, where's that number come from? Why 10,000? Who has done the studies? Well, there was no study. There was the, the, first, the first company that actually um, saw the pedometer, the, the old Fitbit that you would put on your, on your belt that counted your steps. It was a Japanese company and they decided 10,000 steps is a nice round number and it will work. And if people walk this, we know they will get benefit. So that's where the number is coming from. Then what happened with the advent of the Fitbits and all the uh, wearables, uh, scientific studies were done to look at what is the benefit that you get from each amount. The bottom line is 2,000 is better than zero. And 4,000 is even better. 6,000, which I think corresponds to about the 20 minutes, uh, 20 to 25 minutes a day, you, you get the maximum bang for your buck. If you continue exercising, you, get, you keep going more. You keep getting more and more benefit, but it it's, tends to plateau. And so I tell people, you know, if, you, if, you wanna, if you're not walking every day, first thing you can do for your health is start walking 30 minutes a day because you will get a lot of benefit. 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes at night, or, you know, a stroll. And the, the most amazing thing is that sports is the, you know, the best anti-aging intervention that we have today. 
and that we're going to have for the next, I would, I would predict for the next 10 to 15 years before we have approved drugs. And we will have drugs that will target the aging process because some of us, independently of what you're doing, are a genetic risk in the opposite way from the centenarians. They show accelerated aging. I love that comment of um, uh, benefit, big bang for your buck. Is that why the Institute's named exactly. that? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, think about it. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, so I'm trying, I'm, I, you know, I'm here partly representing all of you. I'm partly representing the audience, right? And so I'm thinking to myself, you know, there's a time for all things. You know, aging is a part of life. It's a part of the cycle of living, whatever. Is, I want to contextualize this. Is aging for you a problem to be solved? Whatever that means. We want to talk about that. And also... Part of the contextualization is what's the relationship between aging and chronic disease? Because if there's a strong relationship, that contextualizes it for me. Yes. So aging is a process. And I'll try to explain. Um, you know, I have, I have a nice slide that I, I, w I will ask you to sort of imagine in your head. So imagine a, a 1940 pickup truck um, which rolled out you know, you can imagine, pickup truck, abandoned in a yard. It's all rusty. You know, it's a, a junk find, a yard find. And it, its wheels have fallen off. There's no tires. You know, the, the, glass, the windows are gone. So that's your typical 1940 pickup truck. Imagine now the same exact truck that has been in the hands of a, co a collector, a mechanic who's just been maintaining everything. So that truck on the right is actually in the same state as when it rolled off the, um, the assembly line. So these two trucks have the same chronological age. They're both from 1940, but they have very different biological age. One runs perfectly just like new. The other one is completely gone. And so the same goes for us. So we all have two different ages. We have our biological age and our chronolog chronological age. And what this means is uh, in any person, we can now measure where you are in your trajectory. The first thing, so the reason that we age is the same thing that the truck on the left aged. It was not maintained. And we are, as living organism, we are constantly submitted to insult. And you, I'll just leave it to your imagination. Gravity pulls on our skin, on our bones, on our, on our joints. Imagine UV, you go in the sun without sunscreen, you're going to be bombarded by UV, UV ray. We have gamma rays that are coming. We have toxins in the air we breathe. And, and you go out in the, in the street on Embarcadero, I mean, you, you're getting exposure to a lot of toxins. All of these toxins, the food we eat also has some degree of toxins. So imagine this constant bombardment means that our body has to constantly repair and fix itself. And in, in some way, the miracle is not the fact that we age, it's the fact that we age so slowly. Now, because if, for example, major pathways that control aging are pathways that repair DNA and repair proteins. Now, if you're lacking one of these repair pathways, these individuals age extremely rapidly. Life expectancy is 15 to 20 years old. And they have a very compressed life. So they, they go through adulthood when they're eight years old in terms of their skins. You, their, their hair starts graying at eight. So you can see really what happens when these repair pathways are damaged. And this is what we've been doing for the last 20 years, understanding what are all these repair pathways. The other thing I want to plant in your, in your head is this idea that we are, a good indication of the repair is our body turns over. Now, you might think that you are the same person as you were 20 years ago, but you are, in terms of atoms, you are completely different. And it's actually pretty scary to think about it. <laughs> because the food you eat, you know, eventually, if you don't believe me, I'll just ask you to think about your skin. If you have a Sharpie at home, uh, color the back of your hand and don't wash it. Uh, or a part, a part of your body that you don't wash for, and you will see it eventually will go off. Why? Because our skin is constantly growing and we're shedding skin nonstop. Now, you might have heard, well, our brains are actually 
are the same as when we had when we were kids. Yet the cells in the brain, the neurons, do not divide. They don't get replaced. If you lose them, you cannot make new ones. But the atoms, the proteins, get replaced. So think about yourself every day. Whatever is damaged is sorted out and discarded, fixed, and, and, and made new. So that actually, if you look at yourself day from day to day in the mirror, you will not see any difference. You probably won't see any difference year over year, but over this long period, these damages slowly accumulate. And so aging is a, is a, is a failure of these repair mechanisms. So if you have a protein that's damaged, you try to fix it, but you might not fix it in a perfect way. You replace it with something that's not totally functional. And that's what aging is, the accumulation of these small degradation. Now, the important consequence of this is, and we understand what many of these pathways are, so we know what these anti-aging pathways are. The amazing thing is that that process starts at 30, which is pretty remarkable. And, and, and this is one area where I'm so excited about. So if you think about aging starting at 30, that means if you start tackling aging early, you can actually alter its course. And we know we all age at different rates. And why do I know this? Because it's reflected by the fact that we live different periods. And I suspect some of you are in your 60s. If you have gone to a high school reunion, um, <laughs> you have? <laughs> and, and two things. First, you know, people change. Well, you clearly see the difference. But second, you probably saw some people and thought, person aged amazing, look at this one. And then you look at another one who has aged very poorly and you see incredible differences. So they very likely have very different biological age. Now you can, you can measure biological age in many different ways. One very simple way is to look at their face, frankly. You can, just by looking at people, you can determine, you know, is this person looking young or old for their age? But now we have tools that allow us to really measure this in your blood. We can today, using a, a blood draw, predict what we call time of death, TOD, plus or minus two years. Assuming that you don't change anything, you know, because you know, we, can, we can determine where you are in this trajectory. And so this is actually a, a really exciting area of the field, is this idea that imagine in the future we will have a, a patient that comes in and see the doctor at age 40, and you will be able to determine and tell that person um, you look like you're on a trajectory to die at 75 if you don't do anything. And so now you recommend to this person, you tell him, well, you know, him or her, if you start working 30 minutes a day, come back and see me in one year, that person comes back and now all of a sudden the trajectory has shifted, you know, the curve is less sharp. So this is the type of medicine that I think we envision to become reality. And this is a, a brand new initiative at the Buck Institute uh, in collaboration with a number of colleagues, is the idea of really pushing for these biomarkers of aging so we can really measure precisely how well you're aging and what your trajectory is. A and then make recommendations, either drugs in the future, lifestyle, because the bottom line right now, if you think about all, you know, I'll, I'll give the final example of exercise. If you think about exercising, I told you some studies say that um, on average, if you walk 25 minutes a day, you will get all these benefits. But there's another variable that is incredibly important. It's this idea of uh, individuality. We are very different from each other, and we respond to different interventions. So when I tell you that you should walk 25 minutes a day, it's probably true for 75% of the audience, but maybe some people actually are not going to benefit in the same way. How do we measure this? And so this is where this whole idea of personalized medicine comes into the picture, which is going to become a major part of our effort. How do we, how do we identify these biomarkers that allow you to predict who's benefiting from what, you know, in terms of diet, in terms of exercise, in terms of sleep, and so on? So that, that's really where the field is going. You know, it's remarkable when you, when you talk about the differential rates of aging between individuals. I mean, how many people in this audience have like looked in the mirror one morning and seen their mother or father? It's astonishing. It's like, my father is still alive. And I, anyway, <laughs> I look like my father increasingly. It's kind of scary. <laughs> um, 
And I was at a high school reunion with a friend, and I said, have you seen Fred? And she said, yeah, he's across the room. And I said, where? And she said, he's across the room. And I said, next to the teacher? And she said, he's the teacher. So this guy was looked like 40 years older than I am, and it was very strange. He was 185. It was very strange. So this notion that everyone is actually aging differently, you know, people are so competitive about that, right? Oh, you look good. <laughs> Just saying. Okay, now I have a question. Now we're beginning to get lots of questions from the audience. And, um, and my job is to try and find ones that are incredibly exciting. And this one, I wanna, I'm going to ask you about it before you answer. It's not controversial, but it sounds to me like it does involve potentially a lot of science, and we don't want to get too sidetracked. So I'm going to give you the question and think about it for a second. How does lifestyle activate our inherited genes? So if you think about you mentioned genes lifestyle, environment. What can you say to a non-scientific audience on how that works, if that makes sense? That's a tough one, but I'll, I'll, yes. give, you one I'll give you one example because this is probably one area that has been the, the most studied uh, in the field. Um, who has heard about calorie restriction? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, uh, great topic. One of the oldest experiments in the field to show that aging can be modulated. So if you take, for those of you who do not know what calorie restriction is, if you take a mouse, this is where the experiment was done initially, and you um, allow, allow them to feed ad lib, which means as much as they want, they will eat a certain amount. So you can determine, you can measure. A mouse without any restriction will eat so much. You can then take another cage of mice and actually cut down the amount of food that they receive every day by 25%, 35%, 40 up to 50%. If you, main, you can really drastically cut it down. What you see is the more you restrict food intake, the longer they live. You can increase their lifespan by 50%, 50%, which is unbelievable. And now, in the human population, the counterpart to this is the obesity epidemic. So if you overfeed, you eat, you, you're going to be, you know, living shorter and, and, and obesity is, is, is a disease of aging in some way. You see all of the complications of aging are accelerated in obese patients. Now, I sort of lost my train of thought, so I'm going to come to this. Yeah, why calorie restriction? Because it was such a powerful intervention, there's been a lot of interest in mapping the pathways. And so mapping pathways, you know, without getting into technical details, if you think about our cells and how they work, they receive signals, and these signals are transferred to genes, and the genes turn on or turn off, and this determines the outcome. And so using the tools of molecular biology and animal models, we've been able to say which... So one way to do the experiment is you we can knock down individual genes. We and mice and most organisms have 20 to 30,000 different genes. We have tools today that allow us to, to knock them out selectively. So the experiment that was done in mul multiple laboratories, including ours and, and many others, is to knock down all of the genes one by one, take all of these individuals and say, okay, which ones now are not responding to calorie restriction? And then you can decide, okay, this is a group of genes that actually are necessary to confer the response to calorie restriction. And so what came out of this was actually remarkable because it defined pathways. So the genes that we identified were already we were working together. And so that allowed us to say, you know, one of the major pathways was insulin signaling. Some, many of you probably know about insulin. It's a hormone that we use to, to control uh, metabolism of carbohydrate, of, of, of sugar. So that's really one of the major pathways that control, controls aging. And so now, now that you've you have all of these genes. The next question is, can we actually identify uh, what we call calorie restriction mimetics? So these are drugs that would actually recapitulate the same response as calorie restriction. And we have a number of these drugs, some of them, by the way, that are approved today in the clinic. And what's remarkable is what we look at the targets of these drugs. So what proteins do the drugs interact with? They're in the same pathway again. So this is an area in which we are pretty sure that we know how calorie restriction works and we know how to access it using drugs. Now, how does this happen um, 
it turns out that many of these proteins in these pathways are what we call nutrient sensors. These are proteins that are in your body that allow it to determine when you're eating and when you're not eating. And so when these things are, uh, don't see any food, they get activated, and, and they trigger a whole series of secondary response, which are protective, basically. Think about it. And, and so this is really how, I, I don't know if I've answered the question, but yeah. at a very high level, this is how we, we, we are able to go from a very big observation in animals all the way down to the individual players. Yeah. We don't expect you to be Fidel Castro and talk for five hours. Okay. <laughs> I want to come, well, he was famous for that, for really long speeches. Uh, I want to combine several questions in, into one in a way. Do you, do you think that, given what we know now, there's a limit to human longevity, and why? Yes. So it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating question. Um, the longest lived, anyone knows who the longest lived person is? Jeanne Calment, very good. She lived to 122, a uh, French woman. Wow. Uh, there's a lot of fun stories about her uh, that I can tell you. One, one of the one, so the second longest lived person is 119. So three years more than the second longest lived. And so there's some questions now in terms of whether she was real or she might have been her daughter. Uh, because... Um, there's there was there have been allegation that this was actually an insurance fraud uh, case, <laughs> but anyway. So um, that being said, uh, we have a number of people who have reached one fifteen, one seventeen. That's generally considered the maximum lifespan for most people. Now, using complicated statistics that I must say, I've read the papers and I do not fully understand them. A number of my colleagues have claimed that. Um, you know, and this is on a population of humans in the billions. Think about the number of people who are on Earth today, all of those that have lived. Uh, you know, we only have a few, a handful that have lived above 117. So as far as I'm concerned today, the demonstrated maximum life expectancy of humans is 115. Now, based on the complicated statistics that I don't fully understand, one could imagine that someone, as some colleagues have claimed that we could go to 150. Now, we should think also of the conditions where someone who might have had the very protective gene and who went to 115 now without taking any particular precaution, what would happen if that person would actually have a perfect lifestyle, a perfectly optimized lifestyle? And I would say that's probably where the one num number of 150 comes in, that you can imagine some people who are incredibly gifted genetically, but who also would have the perfect lifestyle would go to this. So that, that's pretty much what it is. One thing that some colleagues will, will say, and I try not to say this because we don't have any evidence for this, is science is accelerating. There's clearly, I've been doing research in biology for more than 40 years now, and I've seen such an acceleration in terms of what we are able to do. And it's just actually, it's an amazing time for biology. As an aside, we're living in, this, in the century of biology. You know, 20th century was century of physics. 19th century was the century of chemistry. And look at, you know, where we have gone. And I always, when I, when I get into arguments with colleagues, I'm always trying to remember, you know, 1975 when, I, I bought my first computer, or 77, my first computer, would I ever have imagined that I would be walking around with a supercomputer in my pocket? You know, imagine GPS, you know, and now artificial intelligence. Look at what we've done in 50 years. And some colleagues have argued, you know, we're at the same inflection point in terms of biology. We are in the 1920s when uh, all the physicists were laying, you know, the ground rules of physics in, in the 1920s. Now we're laying the ground rules of biology. Who can predict what we will be doing in 50 to 75 years? So there's a part of me that tries to, to be optimistic and to say, we will do amazing things. And right now, medicine and biology are moving so fast, it's impossible to predict. And so I, I try to be on the side that I don't make any prediction, but I'm incredibly optimistic about what, what's going to happen in the future. I guess you need to be an optimist, right? 
So I'm going to combine some questions here. So some of you were here a few weeks ago when we had Dr. Leroy Hood and Dr. Nathan Price, and they launched their it was their first launch of their new book, uh, Scientific Wellness. And at that time, they were talking about biological aging, something called biological aging. And and what they said was, and you've alluded to it, you know, there's there's the chronological age. I'm 51 years. I'm not, but I'm 51 years old, or whatever you are. That's what the calendar says. That's how old. Then there's biological, and then he said, you know. Not only is, is, is there an age for your body or the age your body thinks you are, but he actually talked about there are different biological ages for different organs. Yes. And I thought this would be a cool thing if you were to bar on a Friday night and you were talking to someone and said, hey, what's your biological age? You know, and, and, and Lee says, Lee Hood says, I'm 15, he's 15 years biologically younger than his chronological age. Now, my question is, on behalf of the audience, what? how can we measure? Is it possible to measure such things? And are we going to eventually, in our lifetime, get some kind of a device or an app that's going to give us a number? Yeah. So... Um, so first, I mean, there is evidence for this, and actually, I w- we we hold a, a, an area a, a meeting in the Bay Area called BAM Bay Area Aging Meeting, and we <laughs> hold this every uh, six months uh, with colleagues from UCSF, from Gladstone, from uh, Stanford, Berkeley. Actually, UC Davis is coming as well. Uh, I started this meeting uh, about 11 years ago with a colleague from Berkeley, and first it was like sort of a joint lab meeting. We had about 30 people. Uh, we have 700 people at every one of these meetings now. And, wow. and it's twice a year, and it's only local scientists. Uh, and at this meeting, a colleague from Stanford, Tony Wiscoray, um, actually showed f- the first evidence. He actually has the markers. Okay. Uh, again, we talked about these biological markers. We can now detect in the blood. Uh, he has a signature that corresponds to aging for each individual organ. So with a single blood draw, he can then determine in different individuals how their different organs are aging. Now, one thing that's important to know also, today, if we look at the major cause of death is heart disease by far. And so in some way, measuring your biological age is going to be a really good way to predict your um, you know, how, how at risk you are from, a, from an, early, an early demise. So I think that science, uh, this is the first time that actually I heard someone talk about this. And yesterday, there was a paper posted on LinkedIn that described this from another group. Uh, same thing. Okay. So single blood draw, a whole set of protein associated with aging in different organs. What was also shown is that we all age at, first, we all age at different rates, but within each individual, we might show frailty or susceptibility in different organs. So I might be at risk for heart disease. Another one might be at risk for dementia and so on. So that being said, aging itself is still the major driver of all of these chronic diseases that we've talked about. Mm-hmm. So I talk to a lot of people who invest in science companies, and the trillion-dollar question that I have heard is, you ready for this? Is it, do you believe it is possible to slow the process of aging or even reverse it? Very good question. Uh, one that actually has generated a lot of press recently because some, some have claimed, you know, evidence for reversal of aging. Um, Anybody here heard about Brian Johnson? Mm -hmm. Yes? Well, Brian Johnson, I'll I'll give you the example. It's it's, because this is, I I believe, a true evidence of reversal of aging. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I must say, I first thought he was a a quack, but I, I met him and I spent hours with him and he is not. I think he's a true, he's a true pioneer, but He's a little bit crazy, and you, you'll, 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 you'll hear why. Uh, so uh, Brian uh, started a company called Venmo and, and sold it and for a few hundred million dollars, and so became wealthy and decided, um, was also a typical tech executive, overworked, over-caffeinated, over-redbulled, over, uh, you know, just, just name it, not yeah. sleeping, all-nighters, no exercise, and so, which is actually, by the way, we see a lot in, in, in tech workers. And realize, you know, 
somewhat overweight that he was on the trajectory to live short. And, you know, one adage that I love is wealth without health is worthless. And, and so he realized this and he decided to um, spend his time and his energy to focusing on, on improving his health. So he spends about $2 million a year um, on an experiment on himself and one. And his goal is to reverse his aging process. And so he has tw a team of 20 physicians who are essentially telling him what to do. <laughs> and he has one thing that I love, uh, which is, you know, big determinant about healthy behaviors is, is the willpower to do it. And so he explains how um, he fired the evening Brian. The evening Brian is the Brian that would have a drink, eat too much, not sleep, you know, do, do drugs, do all of these things. So he fired him. And so that evening Brian is gone. So this is the other Brian now who can make all the right decision. Now, he's been doing this for two years and all of his data is on the internet. Um, so you can, it's called Blueprint N1. You can go look at it. It's an N of one, but it, I think it's highly significant because in the last two years doing extreme intervention, I'll grant you this, um, he has managed to revert his age by eight years. And, and right now, you know, we have a test that we, allows us to measure the pace of aging. That is, how fast are you aging? If I, if I, if I would measure you now, would be able to, you're measuring at one year per year. Or you might, right now, he's aging at a rate of a 15-year-old, which is incredible. Uh, because that means he's barely aging. Uh, one interesting factoids during the period between 20 and 30, we age at, at a rate that is so low that if we were able to maintain this throughout life, we would live a thousand years. So I think for Brian, it means not only he's reverted his age, but he is really aging at an extremely low rate. Now, um, he's on calorie restriction. We talked about this, which is not something that most people do. A colleague of mine said one time that you know, calorie restriction in humans might not make you live forever, but it will certainly feel that way. Um, and when I, when I met Brian, actually, he came to the meeting. This was a meeting in San Diego. He came with his little top because I asked him, so how much do you eat? And he said um, 793 calories per day. And I said, how do you know? He says, because he has a team that prepares. He, he eats the same food every day, and they're weighted to the grams. And so he came to the meeting with his little Tupperware. Um, it was, I mean, it's crazy. But uh, at the same time, I asked him, I said, what about your social life? What about this and that? He said, I've never had as many friends, uh, you know what you might consider important to your life. I've decided this is not what's important for me is to live a long and healthy life. And he said, I've never been more happy. And I frankly, I mean, he was genuine. So whatever he's doing is working for him. I don't think it would work for most people, but I, you have to respect what he's doing. And I think uh, you know, some of my colleagues think he's crazy, he's this and that. I think he's important in really showing the potential of these lifestyle factors. And so we are you know, talking and potentially collaborating, helping him to measure some of the parameters that he's measuring, and also maybe some modifying some of the interventions that he's doing. Because right now he's doing everything. Uh, yeah. and so just go look, if you're interested, go look at Blueprint, Brian Johnson. Well, I hope you're going to still encourage us all to go to the reception and have a few calories. I'm about ready to leave. On that. <laughs> yes. I'm joking. Um, so, you know, we're coming near the end here. I'll there, be watching all of you, by the way. <laughs> you have to see that, that, that. That is, by the way, one of the aspects of my job that I do not like because I'll go to dinner with some people and, and people will say, well, is that okay if I eat? The people are feeling guilty because they feel... They feel that I'm judging them. I don't. As, as, uh, as my wife, who is in the audience here, will tell you, I'm eminently seducible. So if you bring good food, you know, I will, or a good glass of wine, uh, the wine too. I, I will. So I got a last question before we kind of wrap up. Um, the, the Commonwealth Club is, is, is a, a public affairs forum. In fact, it's the oldest and largest public affairs forum in the United States. And we have speakers come here talk about all aspects of society. Uh, and I've got a lot of questions here, and there is a recurring theme 
which is it kind of plays off your statement about your health depends on your zip code and where you live and when you went to school and this kind of thing. And uh, what people here, I think, are concerned about is when you talk about this Brian, that we're talking about science and technology for zillionaires. It, that story for me was ringing alarm bells. I know who he is, but there is a bit of a concern that how in the world, when we don't have a universal healthcare system, we don't have a single payer, how is this going to benefit the majority of Americans? Uh, and I think I disagree. I disagree because it's I think a question. Yeah, I, I disagree with the premise of the question okay. because I think what Brian is first is an N of one, but he's teaching us. You know, the way all of his interventions are done is he doesn't do everything at once. He's doing them sequentially. Every time he introduces a modification, there's a measurement. So it's based basically he's changing as he's learning. Now the bottom line is we don't know. And, and it's cost him $2 million because he's measuring everything. You know, and it's the same for the biomarkers, for example, that Lee Hood is talking about. Mm -hmm. Right now, uh, you know, sequencing the... I go back to sequencing the human genome. The first human genome was sequenced. It cost $3 billion. Today, you can get it done for $100. 25 years later, $100 from $25 billion. So imagine, and, you know... But we had to sequence the first one to get to where we are today, where my prediction is within the next five years, every baby that will be born will have its genome sequenced. So we are at the cutting edge where these interventions, these, the science is expensive because we are essentially testing everything, measuring everything, yeah. and navigating in the dark. The hope is that with time, we will learn and we will be able to identify the variables that are you know, the most predictive and the most important in terms of measurement. So this is really how I would, I would you know, sort of reframe the whole thing. What Brian is doing is pioneer and it's extreme, but I think, I suspect we will learn some really important thing out of it. And plus it's his own money, at least, you know, <laughs> that's the, good, the good, good aspect of it. Well, you handled that question very well, I must say. Uh, so we're we're coming close to the end. Before we go up to the reception with the beautiful views over San Francisco Bay, uh, this audience, I think, likes to leave the room with some practical information, right? So, given that we have about a minute or less, what can what can you say that will make all of us feel like tomorrow morning I'm really going to try something? Now, calorie restriction, maybe no breakfast. I don't know. It's an interesting one. So. I told you about the exercise, so I would hope that all of you going back. One thing, the most rewarding aspect of this job for me has been the fact that when I give these talks and I will meet people six months later who will tell me it worked. You know, I did, I did this and <laughs> I feel better, I sleep better and this and that. So that's number one. Um, number two, um, so I told you about to w the walking, which is really simple. The, the second thing that I, I have seen personally make a huge difference in my energy in terms of everything, health in general, is uh, fasting. And now, in, in, for many of you, the idea, oh my God, fasting, I cannot do this, I get dizzy, I get grump, I get hangry, I get, you know, I, I get all of these things, I cannot fast. But there's another way which is uh, actually really slowly seeping in, into the longevity circles and in the general population this is the idea of restricting the number of hours that you're eating in a day if i were to uh, uh to guess for most of you are getting up around seven in the morning on average you will have your coffee with a creamer or maybe a croissant or something in the for breakfast at seven o'clock in the morning you will go throughout your day you'll have maybe a snack or lunch you'll have dinner around between six and eight and maybe at 9 or 10 o'clock at night, you'll have a piece of chocolate or something sweet when you're watching television or, or a nightcap or a glass of orange juice and so on. So most, most of us, actually, in the study has, has been done, most of us eat from 7 in the morning until 11 o'clock at night. So we are in contact with food. So that's 7 to 11, that's 16 hours, correct? Yeah. 16 hours. So most of us are on what we call a 16 to 8 Diet. So 16 hours of feeding, eight hours of fasting. So you go to bed at 11, you go to sleep, and you wake up in the morning, so you fast for eight hours. Now, fasting has 
like calorie restriction, activates all of your repair pathway. What do you do when you sleep? Your body gets in a mode where it starts repairing everything. Your brain gets, your, your, the liquid in your brain gets changed, almost like an oil change. Your proteins get repaired, your cells divide, the lining of your intestine gets repaired. Everything, it's a time of rest for, for your body, but it's a time of repairing. Now, imagine now that you can, and that period is too short. We have not evolved to eat for eight hours, for 16 hours a day. Think about, you know, our ancestors in the old days did not have, you know, a whole food market that they could just walk in or did not have fridge. So people typically ate, you know, grazed or, or ate much less, number one. I don't know if you realize, but we're eating 600 calories per day more today than 1975. And someone is saying, you know, oh, it's because of the high-fat diet and this and that. No, it's, we're eating too much. 600 calories per, on average per person per day, which is an enormous amount. So that's where the obesity epidemic comes from. We're eating too much. Now, how can you, um, how can you change this in terms of your cycle? Many people, including myself, are on what we call an 8-16 uh, uh, type of regimen, which is eight hours of eating, 16 hours of fasting. Now, fasting means fasting. You cannot have a drop of cream, no sugar, nothing with a calorie in it. If you are able to switch to something like this, and it's not easy, uh, and I certainly would not encourage any of you to go from 16-8 to 8-16 in one day. This is something that you do typically, you shift one hour by one hour. Um, Practically, what does that mean? Almost anyone that I know skips breakfast. Uh, breakfast, uh, yeah, if you were a laborer, was the most important meal of your day because you needed the energy to work. Most of us are sedentary and walking 20 minutes a day is not, you know, is not really, does not make you, uh, your calorie requirement uh, increase so much. So no matter how you do it, Try to switch from your 16-8 to something that's maybe 12-12. That's the first. I tell people, if you've never done this, switch it by an hour a day. And then come back to see me in six months. And I would say most people lose weight. The, my best hours in the day are the morning until 12 or 1 uh, in terms of energy. You can exercise. You can run. You can do anything you want while fasting. Um, it takes a little bit of ad- adaptation. Now, what people describe is more energy, more focus, uh, and frankly, we know from the biology you activate all you activate all your repair pathways. So, if if I could encourage you to do something, is just give it a shot. And you know, if you, for example, if you're having breakfast every day at seven, well, switch it by an hour. Try to say, okay, I'm not going to eat anything until eight. You can have black coffee, tea without cream, but any anything that has a calorie in it, a drop of you know, one cube of sugar will kick you out of this fasted state, basically. That's, that's the lesson to learn. Any calorie will just get you out and you will be fed. Thank you. Well, here's, so, here's maybe, what I suggest. Yes. That, that we begin that regimen tomorrow morning. No. <laughs> no, tomorrow morning. And we go upstairs to the fourth floor and we have a reception with wine. And I, courtesy of the buck. And Eric Verdon, I'd like to thank you so much for a fabulous thank talk. You. Thank you. Give him a round of applause. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for being here. I think you're, you've been a, a fun audience. Let's go upstairs. You can go on the elevator or you can walk. And we'll, have, we'll continue the conversation. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.